In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Today, we're exploring issues here in New York that connect to larger ones around the country. Our guests are Michael Sasitsky from the New York Civil Liberties Union and Catherine Wilde. I spoke with Kathy Wilde back in May of 2020 when things looked dismal for New York City. As the president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City, Kathy's one of the smartest and most connected people I know. She's in close contact with the city's top CEOs. And now, a year later, I wanted to check in with her to get a sense of what she's hearing. But first, a closer look at another issue closely related to New York City's finances and city safety, police reform. Michael Sasitsky is a lawyer at the New York Civil Liberties Union. One of the NYCLU's top priorities is to ensure a more equitable justice system by addressing systemic police violence. And Michael leads its police transparency and accountability campaign. The NYCLU is in the process of requesting police discipline records from around the state, requests made possible by the state legislature's recent repeal of New York Civil Rights Law Section 50A, which previously kept the disciplinary records of police officers hidden. 50A was this provision of the New York State Civil Rights Law that put New York at the back of the pack when it comes to transparency on police misconduct. So this was a law that said that records of police misconduct, whether there are complaints against officers, whether they're investigated, whether there's any kind of accountability, was essentially a state secret. Um, And the public was not able to know whether or not the systems that we have in place to hold officers to account for that misconduct are working because we just couldn't access any of those records. So it first came about in the 1970s. Why? Why do you think? So the idea was that defense attorneys were doing their jobs. So police officers were upset at the fact that they were being called to testify in cases, and defense attorneys would look at whether there was a record of misconduct in that officer's history. Had they made bad arrests in similar cases before, were they ever accused of lying on the stand or on official reports? And they would use those bad acts to question the credibility of the officer. To discredit the the testifying officer. Exactly. So when 50A was first passed, it was justified in that lens of trying to prevent defense attorneys from going on fishing expeditions in the course of doing their jobs and representing their clients. 
But over time, it morphed into something completely different. And it became the go-to excuse that police departments would point to to withhold any kind of record of officer misdeeds. Now, was there a person or an institution or both that were spearheading this back in the 70s? Was there somebody ramming this down the uh, legislature's throat? It was police unions, police departments that were leading the charge on this. And it was with a very receptive legislature. There was not a lot of organized opposition to this proposal when it came about. And maybe in part, that's because it was envisioned as this narrower approach to dealing with the specific case of you know officers on the witness stand. But it was at a time where New York and other states were starting to pass freedom of information laws, freedom of information acts to make more public records open and accessible. And this was one of the first areas where we saw police unions start to push back on that trend of making more government records available uh, to the public. Where is 50A at now in New York? I mean, it was repealed. 50A was repealed. And then something happened or did they did they litigate that or what? 50A's journey, it's uh, a long and tortured one. 50A started to get applied more and more outside the courtroom context and as the blanket response to public records requests going into the NYPD and other police departments. And we saw a dramatic expansion of its use in the past five, 10 years largely under the de Blasio administration, where the NYPD started to withhold just summary redacted information on disciplinary outcomes for officers. They used it to justify withholding data, like use of force statistics. And more and more, they were fighting these efforts in the courts to expand the scope of 50A, make it impossible to get any kind of access to those records. They wanted to just broaden the scope of 50A as much as they could. Exactly. They wanted to make this apply in contexts that were entirely unheard of when this law was first enacted in the 70s. So the the case that ultimately led to its most dramatic expansion, back in 2011, the NYCLU submitted a FOIL request with the NYPD. We asked for decisions from the NYPD's trial room that were redacted, didn't have officer names or identifying information. We just wanted to see what the reasoning was of NYPD trial judges in reaching their recommendations on whether or not to hold an officer accountable, recommend discipline against them, and basically just understand what the process was. The NYPD said, no, we're not going to give you these records because even if we take officer names off of it, 50A prevents us from telling you any of this information. So if I'm not mistaken, what was originally wanting to redact or withhold the names of officers specifically who might fear retribution or their records might fairly or unfairly derail a a prosecution, then it became, they expanded it to, we don't want you to know anything, not just the names. We don't want you to know anything. Right, exactly. 58, as it was written, applied specifically to personnel records used to evaluate performance. And what they tried to do was take a very expansive read of what counts as a personnel record. And because of the way that the statute was written, they also argued that there was no kind of out for them to just take an officer name off the file and release the underlying record or just basic summary information on the cases. They took the position that no disclosure was permitted. And that's ultimately what the State Court of Appeals held in, in our lawsuit. They said that 50A, it, unlike all of the other kind of exemptions that typically apply in public records laws, 
actually blocks police departments from releasing anything that's related to an officer's disciplinary or, or misconduct records and basically punted to the legislature to take action and said, if you want this problem fixed, the legislature needs to fix it. Once 50A was repealed and it remains repealed, correct? Oh, there's lots of litigation. There was federal litigation. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals just a couple of weeks ago tossed out a police union lawsuit from New York City trying to block the publication of disciplinary records. Were they published? So the city had planned to publish those records until this litigation stopped them from doing so. But before the litigation even began, the NYCLU obtained a database of disciplinary records from the Civilian Complaint Review Board, this independent entity in New York City that investigates certain allegations of police misconduct. And we posted the database that we received from that agency on our website. So you can look up the 300,000 plus complaints dating back to the 1980s that are in those records. But you know that's only a slice of the records that exist because that is just the CCRB's files. We haven't seen the records from the NYPD itself yet. But with this ruling from the Court of Appeals, we now expect that hopefully within the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to see that information go up online. Do you have faith that you're going to be getting unedited, unredacted information? I'm assuming when they sense that the that 50A is going to be repealed, that they try to do all kinds of things to prepare for that, to maintain the lack of transparency. What's happening in New York, the NYPD, following the repeal of 50A, they said that they were going to create this database. They were going to put the records up online. I don't have confidence that it's going to be the full universe of records. And I do think that they're going to be selective about trying to find whatever existing exceptions in the state freedom of information law. They're going to find as much ground for themselves as they can to withhold certain categories of records. But we're not just relying on the department itself to make the records available. One of the things that the NYCLU has done in recent months is send a series of public records requests to police departments across the state, demanding that in accordance with state law, now that these are public records, we demand access to them. And the departments that are not producing them, you know, we have a ton of law firms that we're working in partnership with us on to make sure that we have the ability to go into court and make sure that now that, you know, 50A is gone, we have a legal right to see these records. Well, what troubles me there is that, let's say there's a piece of evidence like a tape or a photograph or whatever, that the police themselves are the only ones with a copy of that yeah. evidence. So what if the police turn around and go, no, yeah. we're not going to release it. Like, like, make us. And there's no other copy of it somewhere else that, that another entity could release. Does that trouble you that they might just say, fuck you, we're not going to release that? It's absolutely concerning. I think what we have going for us as a starting point is the fact that with 50A gone, the rest of the kind of framework for getting access to these types of records, the law is very much on our side. So if we have those disputes that end up going to court, if the police department is saying we don't want to turn over these records, we have really solid legal footing to go in and argue for why those records should be made available. But to the broader point, I do think it needs to uh, be part of a broader conversation around how we're structuring police accountability systems to be more independent of the department itself. So we're looking at what it could take to have entire agencies that are set up with real disciplinary power that are not beholden to a police department structure that would exist in an agency like a civilian review board that would exist somewhere else so that we're mitigating the risk of putting all of this information being kept in the hands of people who have a real clear interest in not making that information public. 
And that's true of disciplinary records. It's one of our concerns with things like body camera footage. Like if you want to like have officers wearing body cameras and recording interactions to improve transparency, then you should have someone who's not the police department be the one who decides on when those records are being published and released. It's as true for disciplinary records as it is for body cameras and any other kind of tool meant to improve transparency. You can't rely on the police themselves to be transparent when they've been fighting against those uh, basic measures for as long as they have. Who were the people in the legislature that helped bring about the repeal of 50A? On the legislative side, who took the lead on this were members of the state Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Legislative Caucus, the BPHA. These are legislators of color who have been really at the forefront of criminal justice reform, police reform, and really helped make sure that this legislation moved through the legislative process in as strong a form as it did. But I'd say the real heroes of this movement, the people who ensured that this repeal moved forward, were a lot of the families of people who had lost loved ones to police violence. The mother of Eric Garner, uh, the mother of Ramarley Graham. These were some of the champions who, from their own personal experiences, had been fighting for years to get some basic measure of mm-hmm. transparency and accountability from police departments and always saw 50A as one of the main obstacles being used to not even give them any measure of closure, knowing whether or not the police department had thoroughly investigated these cases. And they led the charge on this issue and on so many of the other issues that the state legislature ended up passing last year in the wake of the George Floyd protests. What about Cuomo? Was he in favor of repealing 50A? So he hadn't taken much of a position on it until we saw the George Floyd protests really pick up momentum. And we saw the instances of really horrific police violence directed against protesters. But as as those protests were unfolding, we heard a call from the governor's office to say the legislature needs to pass something. They need to fix this statute. And, you know, in that maybe week, two weeks of kind of frantic negotiations, putting together a police reform package, this became the centerpiece of it. Michael Sasitsky is a lawyer at the New York Civil Liberties Union. If you like conversations with people who are exploring ways to save America's great cities, then go to our archives and listen to my conversation with Tom Wright from New York City's Regional Plan Association. Wright joined Corey Johnson and Nicole Gelinas pre-pandemic to talk about ways to cut unnecessary costs related to the subway. The entire system is broken from front to end. The procurement process in New York State is so ridiculous that contractors will be hired to build a piece of the Second Avenue subway. They will know that it's going to change, but it's going to take a year for the procurement process to effectuate that change. So they build something knowing that at the end of it, they're going to be told to rip it up and rebuild it again under some new way. But they have to do it. And the contractors, if they don't do it... How often is that happening? Oh, uh, All the time. Hear my conversation with Tom Wright, Corey Johnson, and Nicole Gelinas at heresthething.org. After the break, Michael Sasitsky and I discuss whether the calls to defund the police will help keep communities, especially communities of color, safe. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. 
Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Activists around the country have been calling for defunding the police. As a result, more than 20 cities, including Austin, Minneapolis, and Seattle, have made efforts to reduce their police budgets and increase funds for social services. However, Michael Sasitsky says that's not really working anywhere yet. I can say that some of the places that you noted are places that have made bigger strides than, say, New York. And the kind of defunding that we've seen in those departments, there is a shift away from over-reliance on police as kind of the default solution to every societal ill. But it's all very much a work in progress. And I think part of what we're grappling with as we're trying to identify, you know, how do you shift police out of homeless outreach, out of mental health responses, out of their kind of ever-present presence in schools, is, you know, we are not able to point to a, a real model of the place that has done everything right. But there are individual pieces that we're trying to replicate and build on. And, you know, you look outside the U.S., and you see that there are entire countries that have fewer instances of police killings of members of the public in an entire year than a police department here would get through in the course of a week. And you look at how they've structured these departments to have less of a focus on officers playing the role of kind of warriors against communities of this war on crime mentality, where officers are heavily armed, they're given surplus military equipment. And it's this idea that in most places in the U.S., police are so heavily militarized and they incorporate that militarization framework into every aspect of their work. You know, one thing that always strikes me about this issue in New York, especially, is this notion that, you know, the president of the United States 
the only individual who is elected to office by all of the people in this country is the commander-in-chief of the military. We have civilian control of the military. And I'm wondering if the same thing applies to the city of New York, where we have civilian control of the police department. Why does someone like de Blasio, and de Blasio, of course, has a very troubled relationship with the police department, I mean, turning their back on him at funerals and so forth, and these are the things that they do on the record. And I don't know why it is the police have been allowed to achieve this kind of supra-regulatory status within the government of the city of New York. There's laws and regulations that apply to the fire department and to the sanitation department and to other city services, and none of that applies. The police are like the Kremlin. It's, it's its own fiefdom inside the city. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I mean, in theory, the police commissioner is uh, an agency official, just like any other executive agency in New York City, in theory, accountable to the mayor. In practice, what we've seen is deference given to this agency, unlike the deference shown to any other New York City entity of government. The NYPD has kind of unique among city agencies, basically been given the authority to exercise a veto over city council legislation and other forms of oversight. You know, I think back to one of the first campaigns that I worked on at the NYCLU when I started back in 2014 was this package of bills called the Right to Know Act, which were really basic measures in the city council. They were requirements that officers identify themselves, give out business cards and encounters, let people know like what the reasons are for stops and to let people know when they're being asked to consent to searches. Really basic stuff, not actually changing uh, anything fundamental about what officers can or can't do, but being more transparent in interactions, which, you know, in theory could help improve police community relationships because you're actually getting to know who these officers are. You're understanding what these encounters entail. I wonder how frustrating it is for the incoming chief of the New York City Police Department to realize that the head of the union has more power than you do that the head of the union, the police union, is the one really calling the shots. What do you think de Blasio did or did not do during his term? He's almost done with his second term. What did you think he did or did not do to help manage the police, or did he not even bother to try to manage the police? Yeah, I think there was maybe an opening where this is someone who ran on a platform about ending the tale of two cities in New York on reigning in unconstitutional stops, on having a police department that would take a fundamentally different approach than what we saw under Giuliani and Bloomberg. And maybe that was the intention for a while, but it didn't last long if that ever was the case. The point at which officers turned their backs on the mayor at uh, that funeral seemed to be the moment where this administration gave up on trying to get control of the police department. And we saw from that point forward efforts to block the city council from passing really basic police transparency measures. We saw the administration basically object to any attempt at legislative oversight of the department. And we saw the administration take its new interpretation of 50A to start blocking and withholding more records of police accountability. This is a mayor who, as his first police commissioner, brought in the architect of broken windows policing from the Giuliani era and has stayed committed to that approach, which disproportionately leads to more police contact and criminalization of poor people in communities of color, and has never really diverged from that track. So, you know, there's not been 
really much of a, a solid effort from the administration that we've seen here in New York City to actually fundamentally transform policing. A lot of it ended up being more of the same. I want to get back to something which is, I'm not one of these liberal Democrats who thinks that Obama is the lyricist for all of our anthems here in the world. But at the same time, Obama, and I agree with him, that the phrase defund the police is bad optics for this idea of reform. You think defund the police is the best wording for that movement? I think defund is important as a message. And I get that there are concerns about the optics, concerns about how it lands when you're trying to convey what it means. But I think the focus on defunding the police is critical because it keeps the focus on the fact that police departments have dramatically expanded their budgets, their functions as other agencies that are better equipped to handle things like public health, education, housing, as all of those agencies have been defunded, we have been consciously putting that money into police departments, expanding their scope, expanding their powers. And that is at the root of a lot of these problems is how much we're over-investing in police. Right, but you and I get it. But so many Americans view defund the police as you're going to abolish the police. Have you found that to be true? I've certainly heard that. And I think, you know, it's a complicated call. And it's one that does merit really in-depth discussion, public education. And that's on advocates to do the hard work of explaining what defund means and why it makes sense, why it's going to lead to the types of improvements that we want to see in other areas and other services. So I don't disagree that it is complicated, that it takes a lot to move the public needle on this. But it is, you know, we talk about defunding the police because of the active harm that police are causing and inflicting on communities because they have been given such outsized power, outsized resources. And it gets to a point where a lot of the calls that come back to reform or fix or all of these things, they've been kind of the call for years. And we've seen that they haven't produced the types of change that are really needed to protect communities from the worst excesses of police violence. Some of the reforms that have long been called changes to things like use of force policies. You know, if we just uh, better document force, if we better regulate tactics like chokeholds and ban chokeholds, that we're going to see a reduction in their use and against communities. But that hasn't borne out. Now, let me ask you this. In the work you do, do you cast an eye at other countries and other areas of the world and who's getting it right in terms of their policing? So we haven't done a kind of an in-depth, or I haven't done at least an in-depth review of how other countries structure their police departments. But, you know, what does kind of jump out is the fact that most places outside the U.S. don't have as heavily armed and militarized police forces. They're not sending in someone whose training is to think of themselves as basically a a soldier going in to get control over a, a neighborhood or a population you know, you're not seeing the the level of shootings, the level of force used against communities because you're not, you know, you're not arming the cops in these other places as if they are actually part of a military force. Sometimes I only have cliches at my fingertips here, but that idea that, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail may apply to that whole idea of the paramilitarization of the police. But do you believe there are cops out there who they want to see those reforms too? 
I'm sure like there are a lot of people who go into their profession thinking that, you know, they can make a positive difference, that they want to see many of the reforms that are called for. But the problems, you know, are less about individual officers, although there are problems with individual officers, but it's more about the systems that are in place that block that type of movement from happening. You know, you hear a lot about the blue wall of silence. There are these disincentives and retaliation against officers that point out when the system is not working the way that it supposedly should. What role do you think racism plays in the maintenance of police practices that we have today? I think it's inescapable. Racism, if you look back at the history of policing in this country, has been at the core. Policing in the U.S. traces its origins back to slave patrols, groups of white citizens that came together to control disorder in communities. And that disorder was to crack down on Black people who were kept as slaves and to catch runaway slaves. And from those slave patrol origins, you started to see the template uh, for how many of the country's early police forces developed. Policing following the Civil War was largely focused on enforcing Jim Crow restrictions. Mm -hmm. You see the uh, role that police departments have played in suppressing labor movements, suppressing the civil rights movement, in enforcing segregation. It's largely been a, a core function of police departments as part of this idea of maintaining order and control, that they are there to maintain order and control on behalf of white people and targeting black and brown people. Do you think it's necessary for something as sensitive as the police department to reflect the color of the community? I think the what we've seen is a pattern of police departments not reflecting the makeup of their communities. And I think it's important that they make strides to better reflect the communities they come from, the communities they patrol. I don't think it's anywhere near enough. It's good to have diversity. Diversity itself cannot be the end goal if you're not changing the underlying purpose and mission of the department. And what we've seen is as the rank and file has gotten more diverse in the NYPD, you're still not seeing much in terms of senior leadership of the department. Oh, that's my concern. Yeah. The people calling the shots, setting the policy. People in charge. Yeah. The people in charge are not actually reflective of most New Yorkers. I'm always mystified as to, not that we need quotas, but I'm always mystified about the optics of that, that uh, the population of New York is a plurality of people of color, yet the police department looks pretty whitey, white, white at the top to me. The city is a mess. The city is on the precipice of this horrible reckoning in terms of its finances. And, I, and I'm assuming, uh, you know, just logically, that's going to have a tremendous impact on the tax base of the city right when they need money most. The city is in a free fall economically right now. What do you think the impact of that is going to be on police reform? Because crime is going up. So I think it's, it's central to the discussions around what to do with the city's budget, with the state budget. And we saw the, the first part of these conversations around how to handle the fallout of the pandemic in city budgeting last year, when the kind of centerpiece of the debate around New York City's budget was what to do with the NYPD, which there were calls last year to defund the NYPD by $1 billion which incidentally is about the amount uh, by which the NYPD's budget has expanded since de Blasio took office. 
So still returning to some realistic level. So de Blasio, who was elected in 2013, and you're saying that during de Blasio's term, the budget of the police department has gone up $1 billion? That's right. The expense budget when he took office was around $5 billion, and it got up to $6 billion uh, when we were having this conversation last year. Why? There was more hiring of thousands of officers added to the police force. There is really hard to grasp like number because so much of it was kept secret of new surveillance technologies and equipment that the NYPD was acquiring, new units that were put together. You know, we saw the NYPD has touted their strategic response group, which is a new unit that was created under de Blasio that brought in really expensive and alarming to look at military equipment and gear. These are the counterterrorism officers who incidentally are also tasked with policing protest because for some reason the NYPD has decided that First Amendment protected protest is similar enough to counterterrorism responsibilities that they're going to put the same militarized officers out on the force. But we saw this investment of resources into the police department in terms of their budgeting. And we saw this real dramatic expansion of just how much funds were, were going into the department. So the call last year was to say, you know, as a starting point, we need to look at how this rapid growth of spending on the police department can be reset a bit and take some of that billion dollars that was called for in savings, put it into things like the Department of Health, which was struggling, Department of Homeless Services, which was struggling. You know, you look at the NYPD's budget and it is more than the budget for the Departments of Health, Homeless Services, Housing Preservation, Youth Community Development, and Workforce Development combined. So the needs that are facing New Yorkers as we're trying to you know, look towards recovering from this pandemic are in those areas. That's where the most critical daily needs of New Yorkers are not being met. So I think we'll be having this conversation again heading into city budget season this summer. I don't think the calls for you know, divesting from the NYPD budget and reinvesting in these other agencies is going to go away anytime soon. And I would say um, state level, a lot of the conversation now around what happens with things like, can we add state revenue with marijuana legalization, for example? And it's certainly something that we're uh, advocating for, but with a very kind of specific purpose, which is the legislation that's been around in Albany for a while, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. It takes a historical look at how policing has impacted communities of color, devastated communities of color as part of the war on drugs, and says that for the revenue that we're now going to be generating from this industry that just yesterday we were locking you up for, we're actually going to take half of it and reinvest it in these communities, which I think you know is one, uh, a really critical way to repair harm done, but is also critical to COVID recovery because many of the same communities that were devastated by marijuana policing are the same communities that have been hardest hit by the pandemic. Now, you have been, you've commented occasionally about surveillance equipment. Give us some examples, if you will. What, what are some of the developments in terms of the police use of surveillance equipment that trouble you the most? So the, the most troubling thing for years was the fact that we just didn't know what tools and technologies the police department had acquired and was deploying against New Yorkers. The NYPD would always fight requests for information on contracting, on what tools they were buying, on what their capabilities were. So last summer, that started to change when the New York City Council passed what's called the POST Act, Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology. 
And now we're starting to see some basic transparency and reporting on just what the NYPD surveillance infrastructure looks like. So if you look at the NYPD's website, there's now 36 different policies that are listed that talk about what kind of surveillance capabilities they have. There's a lot of lies and misrepresentations in those policies, but it's a starting point. And we've seen that the NYPD has purchased an unknown number of mobile x-ray vans, for instance, which were developed as military tools for deployment in active war zones. And they would use it in New York for what? They don't really say. Their policy is that we may be able to use it in counterterrorism purposes to look for explosives, but there's not a lot of data on what that translates to in practice. We also don't know how many of them there are. We do know that they're very expensive. Just one unit, it's about $800,000. So that's one technology that we've uh, learned about through litigation, through recent disclosures. We know that the NYPD has face recognition, which is hugely problematic. What troubles you about that? So face recognition, the way that it's worked in practice is that it's reasonably effective at identifying white men and not so great at producing positive matches on anyone else who's subject to the technology. Why is that? Largely because the technologies are developed by largely overrepresented groups of white men. They're just not effective. They're not really trained to work well when looking at other skin tones. What we've seen the NYPD use this technology for is some really questionable practices where they've had a policy that allows them to manipulate photos before they even run it against their databases. You know, one thing that came out in reporting from Georgetown Center on Privacy and Technology was they uncovered that the NYPD was uploading celebrity lookalike images. If they didn't have the best quality picture of the suspect that they were trying to identify, they would say, and this is a real example, well, that guy kind of looks like Woody Harrelson. So let's run a picture of Woody Harrelson's face into our database and see who that might produce as a potential match. They would manipulate faces. They would edit someone's face. If someone was viewed in profile, they would try to recreate like a full image of that person's face. We're going to have a mayoral race coming up in the completely exhausted and enervated New York City. Do you have any hopes that anybody who's assumed to be running for mayor, that resetting the police, I'm going to coin that phrase now, that resetting the police is on their menu? I think it's been an issue that's come up in a number of the candidates' platforms. I've seen some discussion of, to use your term, resetting, to use my term, defunding, that have come up in some of the candidate forums that have come up in their platform. But I think it's something where I don't know that we'll see what fully needs to be done from my perspective to fundamentally change the way that the NYPD operates. I'm not discounting the possibility, but I think a lot of it will depend on whether New Yorkers maintain the current energy and momentum that we started to see building from the George Floyd protests last year. When Albany repealed 50A, when they passed the police reform bills that were part of that package, these were measures that had existed for years. They had been stalled. There was no real legislative sense of urgency to move them. Then you saw New Yorkers by the thousands turn out, protest, demand that some action finally be taken. And it's led to real sustained conversations beyond that about what other kind of shifts we want to make in the role, the powers, the scope of law enforcement. And I think if that momentum is able to be maintained, if that is carried forward into the next election cycle and the one after that, 
you know, we're going to see continued calls for elected officials, for mayors, for city council members, and for police departments to take a different approach. But it really is going to be dependent on New Yorkers elevating those demands and making the call to reset, defund policing a continuous call. What do you say with the work you do, which is to expose the wrongdoings and to reform the system? I don't like that phrase, good cops, but what does the warrior from the ACLU on behalf of police transparency, what message do you have, if any, to the good cops out there? I think the message is we have, as you said, often antagonistic relationships because it's our job to make sure that the systems that are put in place by our government are actually serving the people and benefiting the people. And it's often not about attacks on individual cops, although there are some individual cops who deserve as much scrutiny as they as they can get. But this is about making sure that the work that we do is to hold government accountable to the ideals that they purport to follow. And that's what it is at the end of the day. We have these systems, we are told, because they are meant to protect the public. They are meant to ensure people's you know, well-being and safety. And if they're not doing that, if they're not serving that purpose, it's our job to call them out. Michael Sosetsky is a lawyer at the New York Civil Liberties Union. His work is focused on police reform. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, I'll check in with Catherine Wild, CEO and President of the Partnership for New York City, about the city's post-pandemic future. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym... Avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Simply by Frito-Lay. These days, you have a lot going on. But now, thanks to Simply by Frito-Lay, you have one less thing to worry about. So kick back and enjoy your favorite Frito-Lay snacks with ingredients to feel good about, like Simply Blue Corn Tostitos, Sea Salted Ruffles, and even White Cheddar Cheetos Puffs. All made with no artificial colors or flavors. Enjoy what you love and look for Simply brand snacks online or at a store near you. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. In the early months of the pandemic, New York City seemed to be on the ropes. Storefronts and restaurants were closed. Broadway was dark. Unemployment claims skyrocketed. Now, a year later, things look very different 
As New York City is slowly coming back to life, I wanted to follow up with Catherine Wild, CEO and President of the Partnership for New York City. She's in close contact with the heads of the city's biggest corporations, and as such, she has an informed outlook on the city's finances. Things are substantially better than people thought it would be a year ago. In 2019, we had a gross city economic output of $891 billion. That has only shrunk by 3.4% during the pandemic, which is far less than anybody thought was going to happen. And that's for basically three reasons. Number one, Wall Street and much of our office industry was able to immediately transfer to remote operation, actually improve their profitability and productivity in the process. Number two, we got tremendous aid from the federal government, starting with the first stimulus. And so that while in March and April last year, consumer spending dropped dramatically, today, while we're still in pandemic mode, consumer spending is back up to normal levels. It's e-commerce spending more than ever, but that's kept the economy going. And finally, we were well positioned for the digital economy takeover. Our key growth sector has been in technology and in the technology side of financial services and media, all these industries that use technology have been our growth area and represent most of our economy. So we've had all those things going for us and going well. What we lost was our brick and mortar economy, retail, travel and tourism, direct services, small business. That represents 20% of our jobs, but it's only 9% of our economy. So the losses there were severe and tended to focus on low wage workers and small business. They were severe but they did not take down the whole economy. And our tax rolls kept growing. And every day we're more surprised by state and city government not being in a fiscal crisis. Everybody was predicting we're gonna have a fiscal crisis, we've got a problem, we've got to raise taxes. We have no fiscal crisis. Between the federal aid to the state and the city, over $100 billion, thank you, Senator Schumer, and the macro economy that has kept going throughout the pandemic, we do not have a fiscal crisis, and we had no need to raise taxes, even though two weeks ago, Albany raised taxes. For the people that were put out of a job, I don't want to say time bomb, but are there looming problems for us in terms of how to deal with those people and their loss of income? I don't think time bomb is inappropriate because what happened is the COVID accelerated what we knew was happening, you know, work of the future, going to robots, replacing people, et cetera. The COVID accelerated that by maybe as much as two decades. So we find ourselves in a situation we knew was coming in the distant future has come within the last 13 months. So we have a crisis of 642,000 job losses. Those are New Yorkers who are probably not prepared for the jobs that are available. Ironically, in March, we had postings of 316,000 open jobs, but we don't have the people to fill those jobs because of this skills gap that we've been talking about for years, but we've done nothing at scale to deal with. What should we do about the skills gap? 
Well, I think number one, I think employers have a big opportunity to step up and they are beginning to do that with a number of programs. JP Morgan has started a program. There's other companies that are participating in starting programs to one, revisit jobs. You know, New York got spoiled. They could hire an Ivy League BA for a job that could be done by somebody with a community college degree, especially in technology areas. And we haven't focused on making those marriages with the city university and with others that are producing people who could fill those jobs, got to change the criteria. And we've got to go to Albany and get the state education department to change their classification so that people can be credentialed in these jobs. Is your organization lobbying for that? Absolutely. Yes, we right. are working on that. And we have been for a couple of years and hopefully things are going to speed up now. So this is a fixable problem. The other piece of this problem is our immigration policy. Immigration has been cut off in recent years, especially H-1Bs and education scholarships and the ability for people to come here and study. So we have lost a lot of the talent pool that was filling those jobs. So it's a combination of reforming our immigration policies at the federal level and at the local level, really going in there. And fortunately, there is a lot of education funding in the stimulus package that the federal mm -hmm. government has put out. Let's invest in that education and let's do it in partnership with employers. This should not be ivory tower, get your bachelor's degree. This should right. be get a job. Right, right. A friend of mine, he's got two floors, 250 employees on Park Avenue in that Gold Coast there, hovering around the 50s and 60th Street. They said half of them home, and they're not bringing them back, he told me. And he said they're going to downsize their lease to half. Now, I've been told that the residential real estate market is bottoming out. It's starting to come up again. Because as, as people have said, in a kind of folkloric way, they've said, well, you know, New York, no one can pay $3,500 for a one-bedroom apartment in a, a nice part of Brooklyn or Manhattan or anywhere for that matter. And then the rents come down below 2,500, some come down below 2,000, and a whole other crop of people that couldn't afford to live in New York, they're coming. Absolutely. And that is the silver lining. I talked to a similar Park Avenue guy last week who told me he just bought two Upper East Side apartments for his kids at 50% off what they cost a year and a half ago. So he was thrilled with the bargain. It's a long-term investment. So it's not for speculative resale. But I think, yes, this has happened, remember, in the 70s. Of course. Where everybody got all those fancy Central Park views for a song. New York is affordable to a new crop of people now who are going to come Which here. Which solves a big problem Looking for, for jobs. Looking for jobs. Absolutely. It, but it's, it solves the problem of gentrification, fear of displacement. Um, it, and if construction costs can come down, you know, it's been a seller's market in the office market for years. They now have a 16% vacancy rate in Manhattan. That's a good thing right. as far as business is concerned. Startup businesses can come. Absolutely. People tell me that the commercial real estate market thats and the retail market, that's still struggling. Very weak. Yeah. Very weak. And we've got another time bomb coming, which is May 1st, the moratorium on evictions of small business in New York ends. And that's the point where 13, 14 months of rent could come due for those small businesses, and in many cases, small landlords of small businesses in neighborhoods throughout the city, not just Manhattan, who have not had the wherewithal to pay the rent. 
And that's particularly true, unfortunately, as with much of the COVID, particularly impactful to Black and Hispanic, low-income immigrant communities, where you've got small building owners, you've got small businesses that weren't ready to go online, didn't have a website, didn't have the capacity to meet the demands of the COVID. So this is going to be a serious problem. And this is where those job losses really are going to become long-term problems. The federal aid will not last long enough. We have to fix this through education and through upgrading the technology and the skills of those small business owners. Now, you hear a constant metronomic call to tax the rich, tax the rich. And I believe that, and this is an opinion, I'm not an economist, but in my opinion, there should be minimum taxes that everybody pays. If I say to you that you're in a 50% bracket, and so therefore on an income of a million dollars, you owe half a million dollars in taxes, and I can say to you, you can knock it down 25% by giving away $250,000 to charity, but nothing below that, meaning you must pay a minimum amount of tax. What do you think has to happen in the city and in the state in terms of tax policy? Well, two weeks ago, the state has made us the highest taxed state in the nation right. without looking at the equity arguments. 2019, before the pandemic, 56% of the people in the top bracket in New York state were non-residents of the state. Comes the COVID, suddenly people are working remotely from Palm Beach or Miami or Austin or wherever. And suddenly that talent is telling their companies, we want you to move our job to where we are because the tax burden, if Biden's proposed tax increases on the wealthy also go through, which they probably will to pay for the next infrastructure bill, mm -hmm. if those go through, then you're going to have a situation where New York professionals at the high end, earning more than a million dollars a year, are gonna have a tax burden of about 60% of their income going in federal, state, and city taxes. Right. And that is a kind of breaking point when you found out that you can do your work from a state right. where your taxes, like Florida, will be 40% of your income. So you keep 20% more than you would. Well, under Trump, and of course, I 1,000% view this, that he did this to kill major cities and blue states, the deductibility on your federal income taxes of your state and local taxes was disallowed. Is that going to come back? Does your organization want it to come back? Our organization is split because it's tied to the corporate taxes. I would say the vast majority of our members of the business community of New York feels this was a discriminatory hit at New York. It was designed to disadvantage our economy, to create incentives to move to Florida right. and to Texas and to other red states. States with no income tax. With no income tax. So absolutely, it is uh, a hit at New York and it is devastating. And then we made that argument in Albany to no avail. The feeling of the politicians was that rich people will never leave New York. You really have to tread carefully because, yes, they will leave. I mean, I'm telling you right now, you say 60%, a lot of people are going to leave. People start to notice. And every tax accountant, every tax lawyer, every private wealth advisor that I speak to tells me that their business in people 
working on relocating their residents for tax purposes has dramatically increased since the COVID. So this is, again, another ticking time bomb. We're not going to see it this year. We've got good tax revenues coming in this year, but over the next couple years, as they're able to make those arrangements and people can, if their company opens an office in Florida and you're working out of that office, you're no longer paying New York City income taxes. Right. So, for example, if you've left New York and you're in Connecticut or you're in New Jersey and the office that you're working through is in New York City, you are an employee of a New York City company. And the moment that company opens an office into the remote area you're in, you're out. Now you're working for a Florida company, correct? Bingo. That's exactly the problem. That's what I said before. 56% of the current highest taxpayers are already non-residents in Connecticut, in New Jersey, wherever. But their company resisted investing and opening an office where they are. Now the pressure from the talent is so strong. A guy was telling me last week, I've got four partners in Florida. I've ignored them for years. I haven't opened an (laughs) office there. And then a new recruit that's a superstar came along and said, I will not pay New York taxes. You have to open an office in Florida. And he said, what am I going to do? April 1st, I opened an office in Florida. Well, listen, thank you for doing this with us. Anytime, anytime. Thank you. Catherine Wild, CEO and president of the Partnership for New York City. My thanks to her and Michael Sasitsky. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. It's your girl, Nyla Simone. And I'm Mouse Jones. Here to share some exciting info about our new podcast, The What? Hip-hop questions, legends, and lists. Each week, The What? poses an unanswered yet nagging question discussing hip-hop circles. And group chats. And we help you find the answers. That's right. You don't want to miss it. Each and every Monday, you can catch The What? on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.